Madeline from Midwife. David Nance. Seth Graham. Kiaville. Mike from Uniform. Lee Noble. Braden J. I'm excited to bring you this interview with new Renaissance artist Elizabeth A. Baker. Elizabeth's work, quote, embraces a constant stream of change and rebirth in practice, which expands into a variety of media, chiefly an exploration of how sonic and spatial worlds can be manipulated to personify a variety of philosophies and principles, both tangible as well as intangible. In our conversation, we cover some early experiences she had with music. I was delighted to hear how the Florida punk and math rock scene really helped shape her outlook. We talk about her career, and in the course of our hour-long interview, really only scratch the surface of where her work as a new Renaissance artist has taken her. We finished the conversation talking about her experience working with the Price Hill Creative Community Festival. I hope you enjoy. Bye. Welcome to the Tome to the Weather Machine podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Hall, and I am talking today with Elizabeth A. Baker, a new Renaissance artist from, you're calling right now from, where are you calling from again in Florida? St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, Florida. I met Elizabeth uh, when she was on tour a couple of years ago through a uh, mutual friend of the podcast, uh, Brianna Matsky. And I, I, what I remember about that night is I, rem- I had I had the show booked. It was, it was the duo, it was the Baker Hess duo. And I had the show booked at another venue, but then they just like stopped doing shows. And I really had to scramble to find a show. And every Monday night um, at, this, at this bar called The Comet, there is, it's called Monday Night of the Comet. And it's this really amazing uh, kind of 
open mic, but sometimes with featured guests, uh, really, it's really put on by like the Cincinnati hip hop community and the Cincinnati hip hop community really, really came through that night. And so it was a really, really, I remember it's like a really fun night where interspersed between three very sort of like out experimental artists, you know, there was um, like freestyle poetry and and people getting up on the mic for the first time and um, and then also like veteran like poets and 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 musicians kind of you know weaving in and out through the night. I remember it being a really really cool experience. Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll kind of get started um, the way that I I usually like to start these podcasts. Um, I'm really interested in just understanding an artist's experience with music as they kind of go through um, kind of different stages in development and, and growing up. So uh, Elizabeth, wh- where did you grow up? I was born and raised in St. Petersburg, Florida. I am a native, uh, native Floridian, native St. Petersburg, Bergen, burger. Um, Is that what they call it? A St. Petersburger? Yeah, a, a burger. Uh, <laughs> they don't I even like have that. the saint it's just we're a burger um so okay i which is very rare uh most people just like come here and try to take over uh we feel a lot mm. of ways the natives about that but uh i was born and raised here uh so i'm a true floridian which is a rare thing like i said um but my mother is not from this country so uh, that shaped a lot of my musical experience. Um, my mother is from England, uh, but our family has ties to Trinidad. So, and other places were incredibly uh, mixed. So it's really a melting pot in our family of all these different races and cultures. Um, but when I was young, uh, my mother had not an extensive because she wasn't able to bring over everything from Europe when she immigrated, but um, she had a lot of records and I was very fascinated with the record player at an early age. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why I was so fascinated with the record player, Um, but I listen to Rite of Spring a lot as a young child, which I often tell my mother, it's like, that's probably why I'm so weird because (laughs) you had like such weird music. Um, and then like my dad, he's not into music. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a jock, but not, he's a jock and a businessman. It sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what he is. He played professional football. Um, and so he's very singular minded and not really super into the arts. Um, but he also had records, very weird records. Like one of my dad's records was the Super Bowl shuffle, which most people don't remember that back in the day, one of the, oh, I'm a big, scenes. I'm a big fan of any kind of novelty crossover song. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. There's a music video and everyone should watch it. Um, <laughs> And it's all these football players. They came up with a Super Bowl shuffle song. Don't ask me to sing it because I can't think of it now. But I can just see like these just big burly men in, <laughs> trying to do the Super Bowl shuffle. 
Oh, um, and it's a shuffle. Yeah. It's like, it's a definite shuffle. Yeah. It's, uh, it's special. I ask them all the time, I'm like, why do you have this? And they can never, <laughs> they could never tell me the reason why they own some of these records. Um, and then even though my dad wasn't super into like music, he always took me to this place, uh, at the time it was on the beach, it was called Bananas Records. And so like my daddy daughter time, cause my dad is like super traditional father, uh, and not like very, uh, emotional I'll say, <laughs> um, but structure, goal-oriented, goal-oriented, and things like that. Those, that's how my dad is. Um, but he would always take me on the beach on the weekend to go get a new cassette tape, and then later on CDs, when CDs came, became a thing. Uh, and I would get my cassette tape and my ice cream, and that was my time to hang out with dad. So, um... Do you remember what your first cassette was that you got? Oh, um, like my cassette that I got that I wore out multiple times, like Peter and the Wolf. But what I listened to more than like that was Mason Warner's, uh, what will you do with your rope? So my dad did motivational speaking. So when I was in the car with them, basically I was listening to Les Brown and like Mason Warner, like on repeat all the time. <laughs> listening uh to these are things. those motivational speakers they are motivational speakers um, got it and so i that's really a lot of what i would listen to um unless i was home and until i got my own little walkman i didn't really listen to a lot of music music because like i said my parents are like they're really into talk show stuff and my mom is super into the news so voices are more of what I had going around as a child um the first cd that like I got with my own money that then was restricted because it had naughty lyrics was um it was tlc and it was fan mail I think and so my dad was like yeah you can listen to it when we're around only for <laughs> small amounts because this is not I listened to it. It's not appropriate. So uh, that was like my first, I bought it with my own money CD um, that I can remember. But yeah, Peter and the Wolf was my first cassette. And then my first CD like was the TLC. <laughs> but only during I, certain times. <laughs> I, I remember my parents' record collection also being very, very like so, so lopsided and like one like uneven. So like they had like, Ario Speedwagon and Sticks, and then just like most of it was like like you described, kind of like novelty records. I'm just like, did did you win this from something like some promotion or something? Because like there's no reason why somebody like would listen to this over and over and over. I mean, I would listen to it over and over. My mom's weird record. So my dad had the Super Bowl <laughs> Shuffle. My mom had all of the TV theme songs from like back in the days. Oh my god! But on the on the B side was Bert the Turtle from, like, you know, the warning that they used to have for, like, the bombs coming? It's like, there once was <laughs> no. a turtle, and his name was Bert, and Bert the Turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and covered. 
ducked and covered. <laughs> and so I would listen to the duck and cover song all the time. Cause I mean, I wish we had terror alerts that were like these cute, catchy <laughs> songs. Like put a mask and the on. Fact that, like I don't know what yeah. that song would. <laughs> the fact that you can remember that now, just like man, that's like some deep, deep, like subliminal, or you know, just like just the 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 power of the jingle, man. There's etches, also a video that deep. I've watched multiple times too, and I've definitely sampled it in the past in pieces. Okay. Nice. So describing uh, like being in a house where there was a lot of like voices going on. So you, uh, you said that your dad like listened to a lot of like motivational speaking and, and your mom listened to the news a lot. I just, I just kind of imagine, you know, being either in the car or being in the house, just, you know, something on right. Of people like talking and um, analyzing stuff. D- did that, uh, I'm, I'm really interested to kind of explore how that was is later present um, in in some of your in some of your later work. Um, did do you think that like had any any impact or any sort of motivation to kind of explore like the human voice or field recordings like later on in in your work? Probably like passively, it has an effect. Um, I I did biofeedback as a child, and so like that has more of effect than other things because I, I look at the world so differently. So I don't have like a hierarchical relationship with sound. So Mm. like this concept that musical quote unquote musical sound is more valid than like, other sounds that happen mundane sounds that happen uh doesn't really exist for me and it's just like i and also i have ridiculous hearing so for a long time i used to think i had tinnitus and then i was like no that's just the sounds of like the chargers and like the world there's Mm. just present drones every every day because these things make sounds that most you know, in a factory, most people aren't going to be like, oh, yeah, let's make this charger super quiet. Um, but, you know, I'm super aware of those things. Um, and I also have like, it's not really a hatred, but it's a frustration with the way that humans like control narrative and this weird concept that we have that we are better than all objects and things because we defined all the objects and things. Um, and I really feel that objects and things and, and other, other beings have their own sovereignty and identity that needs to be honored. Uh, so that also, you know, plays in. So when people ask me, is there any like one thing that affects, I think it's the totality of all of those experiences. Um, and learning to honor each thing and for its own benefit and its own identity. Could you explain what biofeedback is? Ooh, (laughs) I can explain like my experience of biofeedback because I was quite a young child when this happened. So, and it was also, you know, biofeedback 
in like the 90s and early 2000s was something that I would even say the researchers didn't know <laughs> what they were doing <laughs> at times. You know, it was still a developing thing. And even today, you know, a lot of people don't know what it is. Um, but the experience that I had of biofeedback, um, they said it was going to help children that had ADD, ADHD, which I don't have. It's just I was a very precocious child who finished all my assignments very quickly and we were in the age of like let's put every child on Ritalin and my parents wanted an alternative so um when I went to biofeedback sessions I definitely remember going into a room that then became a very dark room they put uh earlobe sensors sensors on my head sensors on my chest sensors on my hand uh and this was all to control or get readings of your vital systems so that you can use the monitor to start realizing how you can control those systems discreetly with your mind. Um, and I would play Pac-Man and <laughs> they'd give me the stats of what was happening. And there was always like a weird safe word and then the people behind the two-way mirror thing. Um, and so as a child, it's a pretty traumatic, weird experience because nobody can really explain to you what biofeedback is. You're just going in and it's like, okay, so I can control stuff. I can control Pac-Man and myself with my mind. Um, but, and it took me a long time to reckon with it. Uh, but now it's, it's useful in that I, I kind of tell people it's like having superpowers um, because I have discrete control over my faculties at any given time, like if I am in a situation or like I've been on tour and I've been so insanely sick, but nobody knew until I got to my hotel room and was like, and now you can die. You can't die right now, but now you can die. Um, and I do credit biofeedback with that understanding of, um, how to control things and I also developed like a very big interest in cognitive behavior from it um in particular uh how musicians react when stimuli is presented to them and then when the stimuli subverts their expectation uh those those things were really fostered in like through that experience um <laughs> in in what situations do you find yourself um you said that you're really interested in the way that working with musicians the stimuli kind of like subverts their their understanding it, what situations do you find that that happens in is that when playing with other uh musicians like improvising is that in kind well, of composing improvisation is one of the truest ways to get to know a person's mind um because they're gonna rely on like what is comfortable for them and also it's also a huge indicator of like cellular memory um and so i started doing a set of works uh where I no longer really use like these scores uh, 
that are the five lines and four spaces because I immediately feel white male oppression, <laughs> which it's like, yeah, I mean, it, that's, it's, it, it's, it is, it's oppressive. It's kind of like a jail cell, um, but on paper. So I started working with uh, video and sound. And so creating these visual scores kind of like a controlled Pac-Man scenario where um, they're seeing images on a screen and they're uh, listening to stuff that may or may not go with what is in front of them. And then, you know, I, because I'm the controller of that video situation, uh, you know, I can throw things in whenever I want. Um, and often when I do these different video, I call them moving image scores. When I do these moving image scores, no one's dying. That's just <laughs> the lightning. Uh, but when I do these moving image scores, it, you know, I make several versions a lot of times. And I specifically tell the performers, I'm like, do not interact with these a lot. They're like, I know, but they're so visually stunning. I'm like, I know, but you can't like... <laughs> I can't make you a hundred different versions of this video because it's just too much work for me. Um, but so they actually look at the image. That is what, that is the score. Um, and it's not this thing where a lot of times people be like, oh, but let's project it so they, the audience can see it. And I'm like, I'm not concerned about the audience. I want to know <laughs> what is the behavior that we are having when we interact with this like stimuli. Mm -hmm. Like that's what mm -hmm. I'm interested in. And so it's really cool to me because even when a performer has looked at the score a few times, they still interact with it in different ways each time. Um, and it's just, and sometimes there's very jarring things for them and it's interesting to see how they adapt to that in the moment. Uh, and I specifically tell them, I'm like, I'm not interested in you trying to be a pretty musician and adapt like as beautifully as you can i'm like no if you're shocked then that needs to be a like a hard disconnect and i think it's really cool to just put the mind on display like that that sounds really incredible i, I like i really like that idea of putting the mind on display like you said of showing in real time uh people's reactions to this visual stimulation and have that come out somehow through whatever sound they're creating. Um, so we, like moving backwards a little bit, um, it sounds like, you know, some of that was um, maybe some, some ideas that, or, or, or some kind of relationship to the biofeedback as a, as a child. Um, Growing up and getting a little bit older, um, what were some what was what was some music that you kind of uh, connected with later later on in your life um, that you know wasn't a TLC's fan mail? Although that's that's like that's like No Scrubs era TLC, right? Uh, yeah, No Scrubs yeah. was on yeah, yeah. that. Um, yeah, I had the whole collection of them. TLC was way better than D Destiny's Child, but people don't listen to me when I say that but you know what that's the difference between Beyonce and Solange you know Beyonce is a product Solange is an artist 
It's okay. I understand. <laughs> People don't understand, but I understand. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I will say when I was listening to TLC and stuff, I was also listening to like a lot of Michael Jackson. I was really into like the early uh, Jackson 5 stuff in that same era. Um, but then when I progressed further and went through my angsty stage as the one black child at <laughs> the all white Catholic school, uh, you know, that's when I started getting into like a lot of the rock and the punk and um, metal. Uh, when I was in high school, I was like super in to like heavy, heavy sounding metal stuff. Um, and then, but like Russian Circles was a big one for me back oh, then. Oh, hell yeah. Like, I, I mean, I don't have favorites because I think favorites devalue the value of things um mm -hmm. and so and i had this belief even when i was a child i was like best friends are stupid because every friend brings something else to the table um <laughs> but i was super into russian circles from like the myspace days i used to follow them mm -hmm. on myspace um i think dave turncrantz is like one of my favorite drummers uh in that configuration i was very much obsessed with him for a while I have never seen them live because every time <laughs> I have had an opportunity to see them live, I have been in the same state, but on the other side of the state doing uh... work every time. <laughs> so it's been, it's been frustrating, but they still keep putting out good music. So what, what, <laughs> what can you do? Um, yeah. Russian circles is a big one for me. I had intent to Terramelos as well too. Yeah. Um, like they're great. Yeah, and, and and that was, I mean, because also you have to remember that Florida is, it's a huge noise, like noise community here is big and massive. Yeah. I don't interact with them anymore because it's also big and massive and racist. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, Florida is one of the capitals of doom and death metal. So you got that going on. <laughs> um, and then you know, punk stuff. Like I had friends in bands, uh, and that was a lot of stuff. I had a, a Russian friend named Tolly, and he was one of the first people that really got into the tapping thing in this area. And so my friends had math rock bands, <laughs> uh, and we were going to the storage unit to watch my friends play in their math rock band. Um, and so then a lot of the thing, the, a lot of the music that I got interested in was music that my friends were making. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I can't really like off the top of my head, think of like specific band names from like then, but like my friend's band Jitters, uh, which is just a duo between my friend uh, Danny Pichaki and my other friend Nathan Quarter that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's like, it's just so good. <laughs> um, and it's influenced by that math rock punk vibe that's go that was going on at the time. Um, and then you, you had so many venues, which Florida doesn't have a lot of these now because even before the pandemic, 
uh, gentrification had really sort of decimated that scene. And then, you know, Florida itself is a weird place because everyone wants to leave, yet they don't. Or they do leave and they go somewhere that's very similar and then come back. So there's never really a growth. It's just kind of a shifting of the guards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's just most of those people are gone now. Uh, they've either left the state, died of some sort of drug situation, or uh, they're not in music anymore. They're insurance salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, similar to Cincinnati, just in the 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 loss of venues, and, and just in the time that I've been here, the past six seven years, um, you know, due to directly due to gentrification. So, I'm curious how how does um how does listening to all of that punk and like metal and just like really kind of heavy music um how does that inform your music now or or how has that informed your music that that you've created i really think it's like a lot of the punk ideals that really stand out for me um like when people talk about how i am really for like community sharing and like diy stuff and all of those values that like people say oh well Elizabeth how did you how did you do this I'm like well I had a friend that did that and they taught me how to do this and now I just do it myself um all of those are values I learned like in the punk community I think one of the biggest ones that like has an impact as far as like philosophical values is that um a good friend of mine Christopher Nadeau uh has a band permanent makeup and every permanent makeup show always says you i'm not special for being up here anyone can be up here uh if you feel that you want to start playing music and you want to form your own band and like the idea of a band as a social construct and not just this whole it's a work thing uh that we have to make you know super high level um but that it's just a group of people with that are like-minded or sharing ideas uh, and that anyone can do it has a direct impact on me pushing against the elitism present in my industry. So, yeah. I, and then I also don't sweat a lot of the small stuff. You know, um, when I come out with a record, I am not as judgmental about the small things that I think went wrong I'm more like whoa we as a group made this thing and it's reality and I work with the same people that you know were in that same community like my mastering engineer uh, Melissa Harris Chambers is a person like she and I went to school like production school together and so we were doing these DIY projects you know back in the day and now we collaborate on these bigger projects on a much higher fidelity level that sound amazing to me uh and the same thing with my friend greg lecomte uh you know and uh dan byers another friend of mine you know my last album uh greg 
and I were recording. And of course, I'm a trained recording engineer, but it's nice to sit back and just be the artist sometimes. But because I'm a trained engineer, I'm able to do tech talk and really intense post or pre-production, which makes the session run super smooth. So like Greg and I were talking, we're like, oh man, wouldn't it be great to record this piano with a stereo ribbon mic? And so our friend Dan Byers had a stereo AEA ribbon mic that he'd just gotten. And so we traded him temporarily for a lunch, like a lunchbox, uh, which for people that might not know, like the channel strips that you have in a studio, there's this thing called a lunchbox, which makes them very portable that you can take them from one studio to the next. So we gave him some stuff out of the lunchbox. And so he let us borrow the AA ribbon mic for that session. But that's a super punk thing of sharing resources. Um, and so a lot of people say to me, like, Elizabeth, how are you able to do all these things? And I'm like, because it's a sharing of resources. I have this one thing that my friend needs to use. They have that one thing that I want to use. And so we make accommodations so that we can get stuff together. And ultimately, we all have better products because of it. Uh, and that is directly a punk thing. This is so directly a punk thing. And it also really levels the playing field, right? That This idea, um, just kind of peeking my head into the world of like, uh, like professional PR and stuff. Um, it is, it's really kind of disgusting kind of how fully formed and fully arrived, like some of these musicians are coming, you know, into like, just like putting out their first record and just like how slick everything is. Um, and then you realize just kind of high, how high the bar to entry to like get noticed on kind of like a larger national stage is mm -hmm. that you have to realize that, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's because this person's dad had money. Yeah. Right. You, you know what I mean? It's just like, Oh yeah. Like you, like, yeah. It, they own these like insane amps and gear and stuff like that, that like, you know, in, in, in a punk community, like, uh, doubles the amount of collective wealth that exists, you mm -hmm. know, these, with these bands that are putting out like, in like incredibly vital and vibrant music with, you know, a fraction of like the accumulated wealth that like these, like, really bland, boring indie rock bands have that, you know, show up to the dance, like, you know, all ready to, like, go. And, you know, that exchange of ideals and resources also pushes for a better product because it's going through multiple ears. It's like you don't mm. take your novel and have it read once by, like, somebody that you pay to be nice to you. You have it <laughs> run through all these different ears, different eyes that are saying, oh, wait, well this is really cool what you did here, but I'm really interested about this part. Can you like explain that more? And then all of a sudden you have, you know, a record that's 10 times better than it ever would have been if you just, you know, bought a bunch of fancy stuff. But I will say that the biggest thing I've noticed is the adaptability of like what I would call the true punks, not the ones that are like, we're going on tour guys with all this right. money. Like I'm like the true punks that are like playing in a lot of places that are like definitely questionable, making it work, you know, um, surviving on one meal a day on the road. Like, you know, when the pandemic came, 
it was those people, the people that were like me, where it was like, I'm used to making stuff out of not a lot of things. I've accumulated a ton of like, not just gear, but like objects for making sound and stuff throughout the years, because I've been doing this for like over half my life. I'm, you know, 32 now. And I really started doing music and stuff, uh, on some level like this when I was like 15. So, you know, I have all of these things that I've saved, you know, speaking spells and things like that, that I'm able to work with now. And I'm, but moreover, like, I'm also not one of the people that's, I can't tell you how many conversations begin with every single one. Oh my gosh. Can you believe, can you believe that like, we, it's so hard. And I'm like, it's hard because you guys have never thought outside the box. You've never had to adapt to anything. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, you know, we're, I don't even know how many months in and I'm just like, I'm ready to go. I'm here. I'm thriving actually in this, you know, experience because it's all of a sudden put on the forefront how adaptability and like real true creativity is what survives like this traditional systems breaking down. Yeah. I love that idea of, like you said, kind of like a, a going through so many different years, like, you know, coming up when you did in math rock being like a really kind of like fit vein of, of music that was kind of passing through like the scene at the time. I love that because like then like that gets filtered through somebody's own like tradition somebody's own like orientation of where they are in music and then that gets recycled into something completely different and something totally original you know whereas these kind of prepackaged bands or you know like uh kind of industry yeah groomed things are just like okay we want you to do this one thing right like we want you to sound like the national, right? Like the sadness of maps and atlases. Can we talk about that for a moment? Oh my God. The first Jesus maps Christ. and atlases album. Amazing. Everything we want. The second maps and atlases. It was like the shine from the industry that like came on with the turtle wax. And you're just like, this is not, this is not good anymore. Why is it not good? They were so good. What happened? It's such a whip. It feels like such a whiplash. It, it makes you feel like you're kind of crazy. Yeah. Because you're like, like no, wait, this was really good, but there's something I can't describe that like is making me not like this. But why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, go, like, so th that was kind of high school where where it seems like being really inundated in sort of the the community, like the punk community. Um, you know, listening to um, a lot kind of like of heavier of heavier music uh, when did you start creating music oh I've been creating since I was like four okay um, wow. I was uh, when my mom took me to see Peter and the Wolf I became obsessed with the conductor or as mm. I said at the time the dude with the stick yeah <laughs> um, I realize now after you know self-therapy and uh just a lot of self-actualization uh that i really just wanted to be in control of other humans i wanted to tell other humans what to do that's really what it was i didn't want to be a conductor i was horrible at conducting classes 
so horrible. I also don't know why a classical guitar major should ever have to take conducting classes. Um, but nobody should be a classical guitar major anyways. So that's, you know, they should be stopped. It's fine to play classical guitar. It's just not okay to major in it. <laughs> Cause there's no way to pay back those loans with your intended, uh, <laughs> with your intended job that doesn't exist. Oh yeah, um, I know. <laughs> so yeah, I like, I was really into Peter and the Wolf and I like would conduct it myself from my cassette player with my Walkman uh headphones and that that was really where i got the urge to create and so my parents being the dutiful parents that they were um they were like okay so my child likes music so i guess you have to take piano lessons that's what you need to do i had a horrible russian pianist uh, teacher who was very mean to me. Anytime I would improvise or try to show her my little compositions, she would slap my hands, um, with a ruler, um, you know, and, but then that caused me to like quit piano lessons, but I never quit creating things. I was always going back to the piano as if it was like constantly calling me and writing my own little things. So... Uh, somewhere around, it had been like 12 or 13, I started writing the music. I should also backtrack. I was also playing bells. Like I was in a handbell choir at church and, uh, my mother was very involved with the choir. And so the music director became like a family friend. And so I was still involved in music even though I had taken a back seat from it. I used to spend a lot of time like in the choir loft. Um, like I was too young to be in the choir, but they would let me change the numbers for the, like the hymnal. Um, and so eventually that church, uh, cause I was Catholic, had started to get a, a contemporary choir, which is what they just call like cool, we're going to have some dude play guitar, <laughs> maybe a bass, but not too much. Can't get it. Can't have it too popping. So I would write the responsorial songs, like the music for the contemporary choir. Um, when I was like 12 or 13, I was writing it for them. Um, and I did that for a few years. And it happened that a friend of mine, Paul, uh, who now works for the Coast Guard, because um, apparently that's what you do when you play bassoon. Um, <laughs> he doesn't play bassoon for the, co the Coast Guard. I actually don't know what he does. It's probably a government secret. I shouldn't be talking about. <laughs> but like he played bassoon, and uh, I, most people don't know, I also played cello. <laughs> so, um, which is why most string players, they're like, Elizabeth, why are all your parts for like strings so perfect? I'm like, cause I was a secret string player. What? <laughs> um, so I would write things for cello and bassoon so that we could play together. Um, because at the time in the contemporary choir, I played guitar and he played, uh, keyboard. And then sometimes we would switch. And so, uh, then for fun, because we honestly hated playing in the contemporary choir when it wasn't my music. Cause it's like, gee, what's coming next? C, 
That's what's coming. It's This is all worship music. And so <laughs> he and I would just stare across at each other like, are we done yet? Is this over? Can we, can we move on? And so like, then we would play real music after doing our like indentured servitude, um, music. And it was, yeah. So that was where I started really writing stuff for other humans. I would write piano stuff, obviously from the time I was four, but, uh, it wasn't until that time that I got to write for bassoon and, and other things like that. Um, and then I had a band as we all do in high school. Um, it was an all girl band, which is what brought me to electronic music. Uh, you're probably like, why? Uh, it's because girls in high school, particularly in the 2000s, they're super into boys and the texting and the MySpace, and that interrupts practice actual time. So here I am like, yeah, we're ready to start the song. Where's the bass player? <laughs> stop texting your boyfriend. He's not my boyfriend. Um, stop texting whoever it is. I don't care. I just need to get things done. Uh, where, uh, and we're here, uh, where, and the keyboard player. What, what is the keyboard player doing? Okay. This is bad. So I just decided that since I was writing all the parts anyways, that I would just put them on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, fire everyone and employ robots. It's, it's a very... <laughs> and... And, and, and then you get to control everything. Then you get to be in control. No. No, you don't. Because the robots <laughs> do actually fight back. Uh, I, ah, I right. started out doing live looping, which is the scariest of all electronics. Uh, because all mistakes are very evident and unclearable. Uh, so, yeah, I started off with live looping and... Then I got Ableton, and then, of course, back then, I mean, Ableton's much more stable now than it used to be, but Ableton used to do some real <laughs> interesting things. And uh, another, I was also, you know, I got into Pro Tools because a friend of mine, uh, Ryan Shuck, uh, who is now a cinematographer, professional cinematographer, uh, he was, he had a band, um, but he also was really into recording very early on and so like my first introduction to pro tools was through ryan and i was like this is cool i want to get in on this and so like i tricked my parents with a professor at the college to like say that i needed pro tools <laughs> and i needed a brand new mac in order to run pro tools um, and so that was like my, one of my college things. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get, I need a Mac and I need Pro Tools. I didn't need that. I was a classical guitar major, but <laughs> you know, I got to start messing with Pro Tools and I started using the DAW in a way that most people don't. So, you know, for me, Pro Tools for a very long time until I got into Macs, which I only got into because I had friends that were at like USF and they were running Macs and pure data. And I was like, if these guys can do it, I can surely do it. Uh, but I was running Pro Tools as a live processing device for <laughs> a long time. And let me tell you, Pro Tools back in the day, running on a laptop, you know, in the old LE generation, super buggy, lots of things, doing weird things that you just had to adapt to in the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's <laughs> that was the evolution of that time. 
so that was in that was in college. Where did you where did you uh, go to college? So I went to the I started off at the community college, and then I went to Florida Southern College, and then I went back to community college because at the time, um, right as I was leaving to go to Florida Southern, they began the music industry and recording arts program. And so what I would do is during the summertime I would take mirror classes, um, and then I would go back to my you know traditional music school uh during the winter and uh, spring and it was because of that because i was doing the production early on i realized that tech people and classically trained musicians speak two totally different languages and that a lot of money and time is wasted in the studio because they speak two different languages and so to be self-sufficient, again, that, that punk thing coming back, I was like, I'm going to go to production school and I'm going to learn all the things. And because I was coming out of a four-year music program, they were like, Elizabeth, you don't need to do all these prerequisites. You don't need to take music theory because we don't even have a 300, 400 level <laughs> you know, music theory class. So the policy when I went was... I had, it was completely unrestricted. I could take, Elizabeth can take whatever classes Elizabeth wants to make Elizabeth a better artist was exactly the policy the SPC put in place. So by the end of it, I had not only taken existing classes, but I had caused them to create more classes uh, so that things, you know, I could explore different ideas. Uh, and it was out of all of my college experience, probably the best experience I ever had because here I was with all of this very expensive gear at the time that um, that I was, you know, at St. Pete College in the Mirror program was really just, it had just started and it was getting funding and there were all of these cool things to explore. Um, I also did my piano performance there as well because I had a lot of free time. Um, and so my piano performance teacher, my piano teacher, uh, he, amazing guy, uh, his name is Jeff Donovic. He was in a hair metal band called the Emerald City back in the eighties. So he had all of these cool synths that his wife wanted him to not be using, to either be using or get rid of. And so <laughs> he would go to his storage unit and be like, oh, you know, I pulled out my Moog Taurus. Do you want to mess with it? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Um, he pulled out, he's like, I have a cat. I'm like, what's a cat? A cat was one of like the first synthesizers that you could like own by yourself. And because the cat was so old, you know, if I wanted to use it on a session, I had to turn it on at like seven o'clock in the morning so that by 4 p.m. it was at least tunable. Like I could tune the oscillators <laughs> enough for like a 20 minute part of the session and then I'd have to retune the oscillators again. Um, and so, you know, learning how to, to operate all of these old timey synths, uh, it gives you a different perspective on electronics immediately, but also because they weren't necessarily the state of the art, you know, if I'd gone to like USF or something where they had a huge, you know, Moog that you could patch everything you wanted. And it was like super, I didn't have that. I had basically the DIY of the eighties. And I got to learn how to, 
use the DIY of the 80s, the DX7s, all of, you know, all of that stuff, um, thanks to, you know, Jeff Donovic. And at the same time, Jeff was, you know, letting me learn Muzikowski etudes in place of Chopin etudes, because I was like, Chopin etudes are stupid. Everyone learns them. Muzikowski, that's, it's got some oomph that the Chopin prettiness and glossiness does not but I had to make I made a case I was like it's the same thing they're contemporaries it's fine we're good and so um yeah I mean it, it was it was a really when I look back at that it was a really awesome time I mean I definitely had some downfalls uh during that time because that's really when I started noticing a lot of the mental abuse towards women and within the underground community. And I ended up having some stalking issues. And so I spent two straight years going into a practice room and practicing piano because I couldn't trust anyone around me. Um, and I was being followed. So the safest place for me to be was practicing in a practice room and at a certain point everyone noticed that I really had started ascending caliber and so they let me practice on the grand pianos and so now I'm able to practice on these concert grand pianos for hours and hours at a time and it really pushed me I would say into that professional musician territory because I had you know unlimited time <laughs> to really think about the music, connect with the instruments um, in a way that, you know, I mean, not every person is practicing in a 900 seat concert hall every day. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was an idyllic time for about three years. <laughs> Tell me how that experience, and then, I mean, I'm sure every experience that we've talked about thus far, um, tell me how how maybe that kind of culminated into um, becoming a a new Renaissance artist. T tell me tell me a little bit about that and help me kind of un help help me kind of understand and unpack that a little bit. So the new Renaissance artist thing came uh, actually not during that time. It came specifically when I started to work uh, with dancers. Um, and doing dance on film. And there was a moment where the director of this film introduced me to someone else as the composer. And I felt immediately like a physical box around my being um, that felt so constricting. It was as if I couldn't breathe. Um, and I knew in that moment, I was like, I can't be uh, just a composer because you know, by that time, here I am performing, I'm performing on piano as a concert pianist, but I'm also performing with electronics. I uh, had started to work again with movement. So I was a trained dancer in my younger years, which we didn't talk about, but you know, I was a trained dancer. And so uh, that started to come back into my practice. And uh things that most people don't know is that I was and now still am a photographer 
Uh, I used to do a ton of photography for bands, but in a very super artistic way of like using the light splashes that we have on stage and other things to create really interesting effects. Um, I also paint um, and do visual art. So there's all of these different elements that were going on and it would take forever to be like, oh, but I also do this and I also do this and I'm also an engineer and I'm also this and I'm also this and, you know, and I also write poetry and I also, you know, it was too many slashes. And then I saw happen to you on Facebook and I never feel like it's happened to you. I feel like it's always, I was meant to see it. Uh, Lori Anderson was doing an interview and in the interview, she said, the biggest mistake young artists make is that they allow themselves to be assigned a label for the purposes of marketing early on that they cannot break free from in the future. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is my moment. <laughs> this is what it is. I don't want to have a label, but you, but she brought up the point. You need a label for the purposes of marketing because that's just the world we live in. And so I thought about it for a long time and I was like, I don't want to be an interdisciplinary artist or a multidisciplinary artist because those already have expectations. And, you know, as a black woman, the moment I step on stage, there's expectations of what I'm supposed to sound like and look like and how I'm supposed to act and speak. And I don't live up to most of those expectations on a regular day. So I you know, said to myself, I'm like, what is the commonality of my work? And going back to Jeff, Jeff has said the most true statement about my life. And it is, most people change their molecules every seven years. Elizabeth change, changes her molecules every seven months. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so seen. <laughs> That's it. And so I'm like, it's constantly, it's rebirth rebirth what does come comes from rebirth renaissance and i thought also back to the original renaissance when you know a scientist was also an artist and a real red person and was had their hands in all these different things and then of course you know i don't want people to think ren fair dusty turkey legs so i'm like i'll add new on top huh? of it <laughs> and at the heart of it i'm an artist so there you go new renaissance artist that's uh, that's pretty amazing. I, earlier, earlier on, we were talking about kind of the rejection of of labels and kind of the power that words have and 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 the power that kind of labels have over people, and so not feeling like you had to or you were kind of forced or constrained to call yourself by one of these things. That do you feel like that all of these kind of uh different avenues that you that you explore and, and that you're you know that that you kind of live in um do you feel like they're kind of all on kind of like equal plane with one another i, I know that's something we talked about earlier is that you, rejection of kind of the hierarchy of sounds even do you feel like that they're all kind of like equally valid yes so you know they're all parts of who i am it's just that some show in different uh circumstances uh appropriate to what's going on at that time in that place you know i think of it like 
when I speak about stuff from an activist point of view, I'm not Elizabeth A. Baker activist all the time. Although I will say I do struggle <laughs> a lot of times from enjoying many things be from being too woke. It's a thing. Um, it's like you slip into it and people say things you're like, but no, you can't say that because you know, gender's on a spectrum. We can't just be seen. And, and it's like, no, Elizabeth, I was making a joke. I'm like, no, but it's, we can't joke about these things. <laughs> so, you know, but otherwise, you know, these, they're, they're things where it, there's a gradation. They always are there, but you know, some spiral out at a certain different time. Um, I don't know. It's, I guess, as, as much as I can understand it as a person who doesn't experience this, the closest thing I can really explain it to you is like a person that has multiple personalities and refers to themselves as a system and that different parts of the system show up at different times to protect the system or to, you know, make it known. Um, that's, I guess, the easiest way to describe all of my roles is that they're all part of one being but they come out when they're useful. <laughs> so recently, I, you know, we talked a little bit earlier just about how during, you know, the pandemic and, and quarantine, you've actually, you know, you've been thriving and, and doing really well. During all of this, you know, past year, which has just been unprecedented, what has come out for you? Like, what have you been focusing on in kind of all of these different facets of, you know, your, your being and, and your, your kind of mode of expression. Has there been one that has been, um, that you found yourself maybe spending more time in um, or have feeling like a need to nurture a little bit more or uh, spend more time creating in? No. Um, okay. <laughs> every day is different, uh, you know, and, and that comes from the fact that I am so incredibly busy. Just, I, every day. I'm working on something, I, you know, I have commissions or I have clients for uh, diversity, inclusion and equity counseling, uh, or cons consultations. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm always doing something. Uh, and that means that I have very little time to sit on my laurels and just be like, Oh yeah, no, I'd like to know that that time does not, does not exist. It's like, what is the next thing that needs to get done? Uh, is always the thing. Something I probably need more time or more attention to is just emails. But I think that's just, I need a personal assistant. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah, you need an assistant. <laughs> not something that people really do a great job cultivating, <laughs> you know, it's like, although writing a good email, I think is like a pretty good art. Like, it's, it's not the writing of the emails. It's like the actual replying <laughs> to them. Right. Um, because you know, there's a ton. I am very thankful that people want to send me emails about how much they appreciate my words and work. It's great. But I also don't have time to like sift through those. And then there's like the people asking dumb questions, emails, and then the people that actually want to come correct and deal with me and pay me what I'm worth, emails. And so, you know, having to deal with the massive amount of those in one day is, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. A lot of times yeah. recently, I just am like, no guilt, Elizabeth. Like, I, I'll get to it when I get to it. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking with me. Um, one last thing that I, uh, I want to kind of go over before the end of this uh, interview is that recently you were involved in the Price Hill Creative Community Festival, which is such an amazing uh, event that happens. And um, I was really, uh, really grateful that, you know, they still were able to um, show it and, and that so many of the artists like really kind of showed up in that medium and, and did some really, really um, incredible pieces. Um, tell me a little bit about your, uh, your work there and, and kind of your, um, the, the piece that was commissioned for that. So, um, my piece is actually like, it's a website, um, which is weird to explain to people. Uh, when I conceived of the work, I really wanted to work more as a facilitator than an actual, like, I'm going to tell children what to do because I... You know, I've worked with kid, a lot of kids who are in diversion programs. Um, I worked with an organization as a substitute called Pace Center for Girls. Um, and so that all has shaped how I interact with children. Uh, and that hierarchical thing that I was mentioning earlier also happens with children as well too because i feel a lot of times like we try to tell kids what they're supposed to do and think and act and they will naturally come up with very interesting things if you set the parameters around them you know because kids like structure they need some sort of structure in order to thrive and so what i did was like the website that you see uh, in the video is actually a website that anyone can go to um, and I set up this structure. Some of the stuff is hidden. There's like portals and assignments for them to really explore sound, uh, as something that can be made into a product that is shown to others, but then can be appreciated in its own situation. So I had the students do sound walks. Uh, they had little field recorders that they got to go out with. Um, and then they also got to really just take those field recorders and find cool sounds in their space um, and interact with those sounds and arrange those sounds into pieces. So uh, one sample that we didn't use, uh, we had a student who had the recorder and as they were recording, they're like, I fell off my bike while recording. <laughs> but it recorded seeing them saying, I fell off my bike while recording. <laughs> um, and we just didn't have enough time to finish out that, uh, that work. But it, it was really interesting to me to see how once I gave them the tools, how they just started looking at sound in a very different way. And then some of them, you know, there was a lot of collaborative prompts. So we would take sound and then we'd turn it into words and then we'd improvise on those words. Or somebody would find sounds that they liked and they'd send that to another student and that student would create a improv based on the sounds that the other person gave them. And this concept of just continually generating content based on what comes at you 
in your own space. So one of the students was a flute player and we had a prompt that they went to uh, look at and create their own improvisation on and probably played flute for all of like 20 seconds, but played the kitchen sink <laughs> for the rest of the time. And it was just very interesting to see how the kitchen sink is also on the same level of a flute. Like, and maybe the flute was even less than the kitchen sink because the kitchen sink made cooler sounds. Um, and that, that type of development for a student is so invaluable because it now has implanted this mindset that just because somebody says something is better than other things doesn't necessarily make it true. That's amazing. Um, I'll, I'll definitely link to the um, the website when I when I put this out. Um, but that's such a powerful concept of um, breaking down that hierarchy. Um, and if you can do that with sound, right? Um, just like making like sound like making neat sounds because they sound neat. I think is just such a cool uh, experience that people should give themselves like license to do like, on a daily basis. <laughs> and also, you know, part of the, a big part of this was listening to things and reacting and mm. valuing the space for reaction. And so they'd listen to something or watch one of my videos and they'd write or draw what came to mind, what it made them feel, if they liked it, didn't like it. But then we had to talk about why they liked it or didn't like it. And so I often work with educators in the field uh, in this same way. And I tell them, like, you need to have your kids listening to things that are weird and not what you normally play in the class. And then have them draw. And all school counselors that I've ever worked with are like, this is the greatest thing ever please force them to do this more. I'm like, we're not forcing, yeah. we're inviting them. <laughs> we're not forcing yeah. it. We're inviting them to do this because you find out a lot of stuff in that. Oh um, yeah. I w once played Indian harmonium for uh, some third grade students at a school uh, that it's, so this, the county I live in is actually segregated. Like the schools are segregated um, due to policies that are messed up and unnecessary. Uh, and so it basically puts all the black kids with all of the hood problems in one school and all the white kids with all the tax dollars in the other schools. Uh, so I tried to go to the schools that are underfunded and in the hood. And so I went to this school and I was playing Indian harmonium for the kids. I'm like, okay, do your drawing thing. And we, I finished and we started to go through the, you know, do you want to share your stuff? And all of a sudden crying children. This reminded me of that one time when my uncle got shot. And then we, oh, we were wow. at his funeral and then like I, in a class of like, there had to be 15 to 20 children. 
I ran out of corners for them to isolate in so quick. I was like, there, I need another adult. An adult's more adult than me. Um, and so the counselor came in and she was like, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. They're accessing their feelings. I'm like, no, I don't want them to access their feelings. I need them to not access their feelings in this space because I don't, as an empath, I can't deal with it. It's too much, too much feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, the next day, uh, she prepared a like grief session for them and told me that it was really profound because a lot of those kids and of course you know we're having this conversation in America post a George Floyd incident and just had another black man shot several times in front of his children and it's like I feel that if we did these things of just allowing space and time for the kids to process or at least open up, it would be way better for their mental health in the long run. And you just have better humans that are more equipped for a post insane world than we have now. Yeah, I think, man, that is, that is so true. I think that's, such a amazing thing that that music gives us is that that ability to kind of cut through everything and and allow us to just process and in real time what's what's happening um that's that's sounds like a sounds like a very overwhelming experience but sounds like something that you know holds a lot of potential for um younger people but you know ourselves as well to really um, be able to access those emotions that often are, are hid behind layers and layers and layers of trauma. And on the um, funny uh, side, though, because yeah. sometimes it goes <laughs> left with kids who never of know. Oh, uh, of course. The other school counselor uh, that I remember was just like thrilled that I opened up the children. Uh, I was playing toy piano for a, a kindergarten class and uh, this was not, and it was not an inner, quote unquote, inner city. It was like a fairly affluent <laughs> school. These little kindergartners, I'm like looking up. All of a sudden, they're all clustered together on the carpet. Never a good thing with small children. They're right, pushing right. One, one another out of the way. No, this is how you stab. You stab like this. Stab, 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 stab. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. They're like, Freddy's coming. <laughs> Jason's coming. Stab like this. Stab, 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 stab. I'm like, whoa. Why do little kindergartners know about Freddy and Jason and why are they trying to stab stuff? <laughs> Damn. Were they doing that on the piano? No, on the carpet. Oh. Like at oh. each other. Like they're just trying oh. to. Damn. So, <laughs> so I'm like, we need to call the guidance counselor in, which I tell all yeah. music teachers. I'm like, please have your guidance counselor on standby for this session because things are going to happen that need to be dealt with. And so right. they found out that a lot of the parents were allowing the kids to watch these horror movies Mm. that they really shouldn't, or they'd be playing Fortnite. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Mm, maybe Fortnite's not appropriate for a kindergartner's thing. And they had to have a whole parent teacher conference about these kids, you know, at that developmental stage, they shouldn't be interacting with these horrendously violent things. And so it was, it was, I mean, I'm sure the parents were like, why did this have to come up? But, you know, in the long run, it's like, woo, we just 
we just stopped some future violent stuff. For sure. For sure. So what we'll end on really quick. Um, what is your, what was your favorite if you, uh, oh, sorry, I don't mean, I'm putting this in like, I'm already slipping into this hierarchical language, but what was one um, memory that kind of stands out or, or one kind of sound that stands out as really memorable uh, from your work with the Price Hill Creative Community Festival that um, the, the youth that you were working with um, were able to kind of like come up with or explore or react to? I think I was really surprised uh, happily at what happened with uh, the final piece. So they made their own work, but alongside that, I wrote a piece for them, um, which they used suitcases and or backpacks and they were interacting with the object and sound. Uh, my brain hurts too much to think about my own pieces right now, but <laughs> I write a lot of work and so it's very difficult. Also, I just finished a piece at like 6 a.m. and didn't really sleep. So, uh. Uh, <laughs> which is normal. Uh, and so one of the students used their oboe um but put the recorder in the backpack and so there's very interesting effects that are happening to the overtones because of the presence of the recorder inside the backpack uh, a similar thing happened with uh, the suitcase on another student but this concept of like recording but using the object as uh, a filter device was really nice to see. Amazing. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm glad we were able to, to make this happen. Yeah.